Well, good morning, saints. It's a new year and a new sermon series. We'll be working our way through the book of Colossians uh, for the next number of weeks. So as we begin this series in the book of Colossians, Colossians is in your New Testament. It is one of uh, Paul's letters. It is to a group of Christians to the church at Colossae, uh, which is why we call it Colossians. Now, just a couple things in background for this letter. I just want to say this before we even begin. This will seem perfectly obvious, but these letters in the New Testament are indeed letters. They are personal letters from Paul or someone else to actual, real people who at that time had their trials and their triumphs, their difficulties, their challenges that they needed to work through. One of the challenges that the Colossians faced on a regular basis, that entire region, Asia Minor today, was plagued by earthquakes and volcanic activity. Those things tend to disrupt your day when they take place. But these are things that they faced on a regular basis. There were two cities uh, located nearby, Laodicea and Hierapolis. You might recognize Laodicea from the book of Revelation. Those two cities were kind of younger and up and coming. So there was somewhat of a competition, if you will, with the Colossians and with them. Paul did not establish or found the Colossian church. He was not the one who started the church. It is possible that Paul passed through, but he really didn't have any meaningful engagement with the Colossians prior to the church being established. It is likely that Paul wrote this letter from a Roman prison to the Colossians. So that's just a little bit of background. You can see, you can find all kinds of information in a study Bible or, or so forth. But um, there are three main themes that I would like to draw out as we traverse through the book of Colossians. The first one is this. Jesus is Lord. That was the earliest Christian confession it was the accepted and normalized confession all throughout Christendom. Jesus is Lord. Jesus is not a, another trophy that you can put on your shelf. Jesus is not someone to add to your other deities or gods with a lowercase g. This is something that that culture, it was very pervasive that's nice. You, you believe in who? Jesus? Wonderful. We'll add him to the collection. He'll just be another one that we can maybe give our allegiance to or bow to or in the back of our minds worship in some way. We see that today as well in some religions and some uh, philosophies that Jesus is just, you can tack him on. So one thing that Paul will address in the clearest possible terms is that Jesus stands alone. He has been given a name, as Jeff read, that is above every other name. 
He has no equal. He has no rival. Jesus is Lord. He performed spectacularly when he was with us in person. He kept God's righteous law to a T. He suffered and died on our behalf. He was not given a name above every name because he did so well, but he did so well because he is the Son of God. There is none like him. Second, that I would like to draw out of this short letter. Those who follow Christ, Christians, Christ followers have a new world view. You don't just believe in Jesus and then live any way you like or live in a way that your life is completely untouched or unchanged. Remember, Jesus is Lord. To put it in our context, Jesus is not just a Sunday morning thing. Jesus changes us transforms us, our life, our beliefs, our convictions will begin to look radically different from those around us. It is the same in every single generation. Paul will speak specifically and with great passion to not be carried away by the ideology of the day or the ideologies of culture. And even more specifically, many of these ideologies are underpinned with lust and following your feelings. We don't see any of that today, but following your feelings, following what feels right, what's good for you is good for me and good for me, good for you, do what you want. No. There is a set of convictions and truth that surround this person of Jesus Christ. And as we grow and mature in Christ, we lean into those and grow in those and live by them. Jesus is Lord. Jesus has a worldview. Following Christ is a whole different worldview than the world or the generation you're in. I can promise you it makes no difference what generation you're in. You are going to look different as you follow Christ. Third, these are all kind of tied together. This is a very practical letter. Flowing from the two things I just said, Jesus is Lord, and there is indeed a general Christian worldview. Third, for the Christian, it becomes intensely personal, very practical, and covers every area of our life. Even in the home, even in our marriages, even with our kids, everything is different. 
specifically how a husband relates to his wife and how a wife relates to her husband and even kids, how they relate to their parents and so on and so forth. A work ethic, all of these things that are very applicable to each and every one of us, we now begin to march, if you will, by a different different drumbeat. We're going in a different direction. It is inevitable. Jesus said, count the cost understand it you're going to look different and every single apostle when they write to us they say the same thing you're not going to fit in the way you used to there's going to be some bumpy rides but remember jesus is lord jesus has won and he will win and we are united to him So let's go back, if you would, to number one, the first truth that I stated, because I've entitled this entire series, Christ Preeminent. What Paul wants the Colossians and us to know is that Jesus Christ is preeminent. Theologians will call this the preeminence of Christ. To be preeminent simply means that you surpass all others. You're in a league of your own. You do not in actuality have a rival. A rival. You do not have competition because you're preeminent. You surpass all the rest. There is none like you. Specifically, obviously, we're speaking of Christ. There is none like Christ. He stands alone. He is our man in glory. He is the one who has been given a name that is above every single name. In heaven or on earth or below the earth. All judgment of every single human being has been given to him. Acts chapter 17. Jesus is preeminent. If you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn or scroll to Hebrews chapter 3. We're about to read Colossians 1, so you can go there too if you like. Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 3. The book of Hebrews is this breathtaking journey in the very beginning in which the author or authors set forth the preeminence of Christ. They set forth... Or he sets forth that Jesus is unlike any other. He stands alone. And Hebrews does something for the Jewish reader that is mind-boggling when they speak of Christ. He begins by saying in chapter 1 that Jesus is better than the angels. When God brought his son into the world... That's Christmas, the incarnation. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 10 to 12. Let all the angels of God worship Him. That's stunning for them to hear. Let all the angels of God worship this little baby in a manger in Bethlehem. He would go on to speak about Abraham, the pillar the giant of their faith, and say Jesus is better than Abraham. Chapter 3, 
verse 3, he then goes, sets his sights on Moses, the one who brought the law, revered by Jews. Verse 3, for Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses. You have to understand, at this point, you've got to pick a Jew off the ground because he or she is like angels, Abraham, Moses. As much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. Every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. So if we could set our sights, everything that you read in the book of Colossians, everything you hear from up front as we walk through this book, Jesus Christ is Lord. He is preeminent. Following him will look radically different than living like everybody else. So Colossians. If you care to read along, Colossians chapter 1, we're going to read the first eight verses this morning. Not sure if we're going to get through all of it, but we're going to make an attempt. And good news is, we'll be back here next Sunday as well if we need to pick up. Colossians chapter 1, beginning in verse 1, we read this. We'll read the first eight verses. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God and Timothy, our brother. To the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae. Grace to you and peace from God our Father. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope that is laid up for you in heaven. Of this you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing as it also does among you since the day you heard of it and understood the grace of God, the grace of God in truth. Just as you learn from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant, he is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. Now, just a quick reminder, these little cities in Asia Minor, a lot of the biblical cities and letters that you see uh, in your New Testament, they were not exactly God-fearing Gentile cities, right? They were steeped in immorality. They were steeped in all kinds of wickedness. They had pagan worship rituals. They certainly did not worship the one true God. God. But what you see in Colossians is the gospel taking root in their city. A church that is established. An infant church beginning to walk the other direction from the lies prevalent in culture. And Paul writes to them with a pastor's heart, encouraging them 
building them up in the truth, warning them about falsehoods, which literally are all around them, and encouraging them to not just keep what they believe to be pure, but how they conduct themselves to be pure in accordance with the truth. And that in and of itself has a shock value in those areas. So let's highlight this morning three emphases that Paul makes in his beginning or introductory words to the Colossians. To begin with, don't sleep on that phrase, grace and peace to you. You see it in virtually every letter, or they're called epistles in the New Testament. You see that, that formula of grace and peace, or grace and, per- grace and peace and love and mercy, or any combination of those. These are inspired writers, and they are conveying, they are communicating the heart of God for us. It underpins everything that they write. It underpins everything that Paul is going to graciously write to the Colossians. Paul is writing with apostolic authority, of course, to the saints who are faithful brothers and sisters in Christ. Notice what he says in verse 3 and 4. He says, we're always praying for you. And when we pray for you, we are giving thanks. Now, remember where Paul is. He's not in a fun place. He's not in the mouse house. He is not having a good time on that, in that sense. Oh, but when he prays for the Colossians, when the Colossian church comes to mind oh they well up with joy and and gratitude and thankfulness because Colossae is being changed and the believers are active watch what he commends in them this is in verse 4 there are two things that Paul commends in the Colossians The first one is their faith in Christ. Now, their faith in Christ is an active faith. Faith that works is dead. There is activity. There are convictions being built. There are things that are being done in the name of Christ that were not ever done before. Their faith is active, and it is noteworthy to say that their faith is observable. Paul's hearing about their faith. You don't hear about someone's faith if they're not doing anything. If it's not changing them. If it's not impacting those around them. But Paul, in prison, was filled with such thankfulness when he prayed for them. Because their faith is active, which is, of course, what you expect. The church was not just sitting idly by. But now Paul makes a connect. 
Notice what he says. He says their faith in Christ and their love for all the saints. You see, you cannot separate those two. They are inseparable. You don't have faith in Christ without love for the saints. Because God takes us, the Holy Spirit baptizes us into the body of Christ, which is, as Peter says, a new and a holy nation. It is people who are in this body of Christ, we call it the church, that have one thing in common, if nothing else. Christ in them, the hope of glory. No matter your age, no matter where you're from, what language you speak, if Christ is in you, Christ is in me, you are my brother or my sister in Christ. And all of a sudden, there is this dynamic that begins to grow inside of us. It's a love for the others who are following Christ as well. Because you can have all kinds of things that you feel define you, but the greatest and the only one that matters now is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Turn to the left, if you would, to Romans chapter 12. This idea of loving one another, it literally permeates the entire New Testament. Remember, Jesus said, by this will all men know that you are my disciples. If you love one another. It is the defining, a defining, but it is the crucial element. There is a love that you just can't put your finger on. It's different. It hits different. It looks different. It's inexplainable. Romans chapter 12. What naturally springs up within us, we also need to be reminded to faithfully discharge. Verse 9. Let love be genuine. Now remember Romans 11 chapters of beautiful, glorious doctrine and rich theology. Chapter 12 is the hinge, the therefore. In light of all of this, do this. Up at the top of the list. Let love be genuine, abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good. All of this is in Colossians 2 as well. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor to one another. Do not be slothful in zeal, but be fervent in spirit and serve the Lord. How do you serve the Lord? You serve the Lord by loving those around you primarily. He goes on, rejoice in hope, which we'll touch on in a moment. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the, to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. That is love one for another. 
Do you remember what we spoke on last week? This beautiful word from the Old Testament called hesed in Hebrew. Love, kindness, mercy, loyal love, faithful love, loving kindness, probably a few more that I've forgotten. This rich word. And Micah, the prophet, tells us we are to love hesed. We are to love, love and kindness and mercy and faithfulness and loyalty to one another. You see, it's interesting. He doesn't just say do it. He says love it. Because if I love hesed, I will cherish it and I will make it my practice. I will make it who I am. Love Hesed. Love one another. And Paul says, look, the reason why I'm in prison is actually the gospel. And I love seeing you guys, he says, who I don't know well, but I'm hearing about you, living this out. Now, second, what drives the Colossians. What motivates their faith activity and their love for one another? Remember, they're a pagan city. They are living for sensuality. That is what they live for then. That was them. All of a sudden, they're no longer doing that. They are making a break From that, they are seeking to walk a different path to conduct themselves with integrity and to actually live in righteousness and in holiness. What motivates them? It's not legalism, it's not someone keeping a list to see what you're doing or what you're not. There's one word hope. That's what it is. Hope. He says that hope springs up from your heavenly inheritance. Verse 5. There is a hope which is a certain confidence. Remember in the New Testament the word hope does not is not used in the sense of well i hope it doesn't rain today or i hope my team wins today i've given up on that by the way um it it that's not what he's talking about what the new testament is referencing when it comes to hope is a confidence hebrews 11 verse 1 Faith is a confidence of what is to come. It is a rock-solid confidence that my inheritance is laid up in heaven and not here. Therefore, I will not run after the things here, but I will run after those things. Jesus put it this way, Matthew chapter 6. Seek first the kingdom of God. The hope that springs forward from our heavenly inheritance. Turn, if you would, to 1 Peter chapter 1. We're going to look at this very quickly. These passages 
And again, my goal is always to help you to see not just one author, but they're all tied together. Different people writing the same thing led by the Holy Spirit. First uh, Peter chapter 1, verse 3. Blessed is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope. This hope, this confidence, it's alive. It pulsates. Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. Our inheritance is in heaven and it is waiting for us. Who by God's power, verse 5, are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. So that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Verse 8, though you have not seen Jesus, you love him. You love him. Though you do not see him now, you believe in him and you rejoice with joy that is inexpressible. Inexpressible. The King James says unspeakable. That's what hope is. On this day, 67 years ago, in Ecuador, five bold and courageous missionaries were determined to bring the gospel to a remote tribe that was known for being fiercely defensive and a little on the aggressive side. They did what they could very thoughtfully to show that they were coming in love, that they were coming with good intentions, that they had no hostility towards them. They took a lot of time to prep their initial landing on the beach. You might know the names Nate Saint, Jim, uh, Jim Elliott. They eventually did land. And they were immediately killed. They were martyrs for the faith. You might know Jim Elliott's quote. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. He is no fool who gives or who, lo- who what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. No fool who l- loses what he cannot keep. He's no fool. Because his or her eyes are set on eternity. Nate Saint was an, a mission aviation fellowship pilot. MEF would not lose a pilot for 65 years until our own Joyce Lynn perished in Indonesia just two or three years ago. My friends, what drives your activity? What motivates you when you seek to love others, to serve the Lord, and so forth? I would like you to turn to one more.
passage, and that's 2 Corinthians chapter 4. This is a remarkable passage in which Paul rehearses all of the trials and the tribulations that they are facing in the context of the gospel. He says things like this in verse 8, 2 Corinthians 4, verse 8, We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken. Do you feel like this sometimes? Look at how he's describing his life. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying in the body the death of Jesus. So the life of Jesus may be manifested in our bodies. And he goes on. The life of an apostle was no walk in the park. For the life of me, I do not understand the health and wealth of the prosperity gospel. It has no connection whatsoever to the pages of your New Testament. But look at verse 16. We do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. You see, we have this life inside of us. We have Christ in us, the hope of glory. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comprehension as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. The heavenly hope that springs up within us, it's what motivates us. And so I encourage you, according to scripture, to set your mind on those things which are above, which we'll get to in chapter 3. The third truth, very briefly, I'd like to point out to you is this. As Paul writes to them, he highlights the truth of the gospel. This is again in verse 5. The gospel, the word of truth. This is very, very, very important, especially in our generation as it was then. There is this tricky little concept that is inconvenient and it's called truth. Truth will hit you in the head, particularly when you don't think it's there. Jesus said, John chapter 14, verse 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Peter said, Acts 4.12, There is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. Truth truth. Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, if Christ is not raised from the dead, speaking of the resurrection, we have all people to be most pitied. Because we're literally giving up a lot of opportunities to live in the moment because we think there's something bigger ahead. But truth matters. This is a concept that we will develop as we go through this letter, that the gospel is rooted in truth. There is truth and there are falsehoods and lies. These are numerous. They're everywhere. Every generation, you know, they're usually kind of the same thing, but there's some unique ones that will come up in every generation. But the truth of God never changes. 
As my pastor would always tell us, God did not write with a number two pencil. So he could flip it over. Boys and girls, a number two pencil is something that we used years ago that you write and then had a little eraser on the end. God does not use that. One final passage I'd like you to look at, and that's John. John chapter 8. The truth of God, the preeminence of Christ, is woven all throughout God's word. John chapter 8, verse 31. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, If you abide in my word, abide means to continue on, you are truly my Disciples, you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. What marks a follower of Christ is following the truth, the truth of Jesus, the truth of God's word. And here's the thing about the truth. A lot of people don't like the truth. But the truth has this wonderfully freeing element in which we are set free when we submit to and follow in God's truth and not our own. So I really look forward to walking through this wonderful letter with you. We're looking at the gospel, the good news of Christ bearing fruit in the lives of God's people and I look forward to, for us to see how that takes place in our lives and in our church. Would you bow with me for a word of prayer as we close out? Heavenly Father, thank you for your truth. Thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ that you have given to us. We confess That he is Lord of all. He has no equal and he has no rival. Thank you for the free gift of salvation that is found in Christ. By your grace, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Believe that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, took our sins upon himself, was killed, was buried, and rose again. Trusting, putting our faith and our confidence only in the Lord Jesus Christ. We give you thanks in Jesus' name. Amen.